welcome to the Burden Steep Podcast. Though I didn't do 20 or 30 years locked up, and I never spent time in the hole or had to make a shiv, after six years in the Texas penal system, I've still seen some stuff. I've lived through many a lockdown, endured authoritarian regimes, seen riots, learned how to navigate deeply entrenched racial issues, and as the world around us snowballs further into insanity, I can't help but think how like prison this all is. Yet it wasn't all doom and gloom, I made some incredible friendships along the way, learned things about myself I don't know if I ever would have uncovered, and I learned that prison Mike was right. They do serve gruel and there are dementors, though they aren't the worst part of it. Join me as I share stories from the inside and dive into how my time locked up has changed, altered, and shaped my views now that I am on the outside. Greetings, free world. This is Prison Steve coming to you for episode two. So this is part two of the uh, my story being unpacked and unfolded. And uh, this is going to be the uh, second part with me, Andy, and Andrew. And we're going to just keep uh, rolling right along uh, discussing what life was like uh, after the robbery, on the run, how I came to uh, terms with, uh, with turning myself in, and then... Um, just all the way up into sentencing in that point. And, uh, yeah, so if you stuck it out through the first one, then you should do okay for the second one. Um, I know these are a bit long. Hopefully, again, you will, for whatever reason that you're on here today listening, you'll find it engaging. Um, and if you've ever done time, maybe you can find some, you know, just personal uh, relatability in this in this story and some of the feelings and emotions that we're going through this whole process here. Um and also, just I would like to say that you know, I don't, uh, I don't have a specific uh, uh, recommendation as far as if you are dealing with some of the things that I share, especially in the first uh, pod that that first episode about depression, uh, about suicide, um, about just being in a place where you're in a uh, place where you would say, um, you know. Um, it's mental illness of some sort. It's because they even say it's psychological illness or spiritual illness. But in those cases, if you are feeling that, I strongly, strongly encourage you guys to do something that I just wasn't aware of nor brave enough uh, to do, and that's to not bottle it in and to not placate it with others that are feeding your negativity, but to actually talk to someone about it and not just talk to anyone. Talk to someone that you know is um, just in a. It, they're in a good place. They're in a. They're in a healthy place, a balanced place. Um, and if you know somebody that is spiritual, make sure that they're grounded on the person of Jesus Christ, and not on a institutional version of Jesus Christ, not on religion or living it out, but actually just on the person. Basically, you're going to have to just. Trust your gut instinct. And if you get a bad read or you get a bad experience when you're sharing that the first time, again, I'm encouraging you not to just take that one negative experience and say, it doesn't work. You may have to go through two or three different people till you find the right person that will listen to you and actually hear what you're trying to say. And if you think you know somebody that's going through some really uh, Harvey, uh, hard, uh, dark times, I encourage you not to just sit on the fence and hope it'll work itself out or not 
I don't want to be offensive or I don't want to get in their face or I don't want to bother them or what if they don't like me afterwards or what if I upset them? All of that is all about you and it's not about them. And so if you really care about somebody, you will reach out. You won't reach out once. You won't reach out twice. You'll constantly, love will keep pushing you to constantly uh, reaching out and looking out for those people. And sometimes it may not even be somebody you know. It may be a coworker. It, it may be just a, a, a random person that you come across. But uh, one of the things that Jesus mandates is that we love one another, um, even our enemies. And so I try to just be aware of that and understand that. Since I've lived through that, I try to just make that aware. So I, I, since I did share that in the podcast, and I don't have a 1-800 helpline or something like that, but I do have my email, I do have my Facebook, my Instagram and you can reach out to me in any way. And if there's a delay, it's just because I'm on the road or I'm just not checking that that much because I don't do a lot of social media stuff at all. But uh, one way or the other, I'm always available to talk to anybody that's in that place, in that situation, having their doubts, going through situations, and especially if you're going through something like depression or suicide or just a really low place. So I know we touched on some heavy things. I wanted to be able to, to touch on and relate that um it's not something I just blow past and forget. Um, just because I'm not there anymore, I'm very conscientious, conscientiously aware that this is something that people are dealing with. And now, especially after the lockdown and the way that things have gone and just the craziness of the world, it seems like it's just popping up more and more. So it just seemed more and more relevant. And finally, as always, please remember to like, subscribe, leave a review if you haven't done that yet. It's always much appreciated. Helps out with the uh, algorithm if algorithm the thing uh, that they're always talking about and uh, everyone else is always promoting. Not really sure how that works. I just know it's important. The video format for this you can find on YouTube. It will be at the Prison Steve Podcast YouTube channel and that will be in the link below. So anyway, with all that being said, let's go ahead and get into the second part of the podcast and uh, see how things shake out. So at, at that point, this is when I'm by myself in Austin, um, on the run. I've got this money, and I'm like, okay, i got to clean the money, meaning that i got to get it portable so that I can fly out because I don't want to go through a scanner, and then I've got $20,000 on me. There were a lot of ones, a lot of fives. Yeah, a lot of a lot ones, of a lot of fives, and quarters. And quarters, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and I was too stubborn not to get rid of the quarters, so... I just would every hour go out with uh, five a box of five thousand dollars here, like in a and say, "Hey, I've got I've got five thousand ones, and I'm a server, and I want to convert it over to like uh, uh, hundreds, mm -hmm. or I want to convert it over into." So what I ended you up, didn't I put tell them you were a stripper. No, <laughs> they were like the only fans wasn't going on then. <laughs> Specialty, <laughs> special for for special fans. Um, but I asked them to convert it onto uh, uh, kind of like bank cards, mm. right? And then I uh, bought some money orders, and then Wait, I would go bank, to the why bank cards because you uh, could because it, through easily. Yeah, yeah, I could put yeah. I could put a couple. I could put five for sponsors. Yeah, <laughs> I could put like twenty five hundred on each card, and then I can use. Mm. That's real easy to, and then I could use those while I'm in Europe. Okay, and you uh, totally you got away with thirty k. It ended up roughly. being about about twenty nine nine or okay. twenty nine seven or something like yeah. that, but it was like thirty. So not well, yeah, it it was it quite. was actually it was actually less than that. It was because they said it was thirty thousand, but I was like, yeah, a lot of money that blew around. Yeah, but it was about twenty nine, twenty, yeah, some, somewhere close you to lost that. Lost a lot in quarters. <laughs> 
So I would go to H E I would go to H E B and Walmart to their Coinstar and just dump quarters in yeah. there. And then I would go and take the receipt and get the mm-hmm. cash. And I would just do this throughout the process. Just take a full day or how long did this take? Uh so it took about um and, and I was going and I was buying things at the same time. So I bought a laptop, backpack, camera, you know, different things that I ways that I could liquidate it. Mm-hmm. And um what's a trip is that very night that I robbed the place, I was like, I went out, right? I drove my car, I went out, and I went to Magnolia Pancake House in Austin, mm-hmm. and I went over, and it was nighttime, and you know Magnolia? No, it wasn't Pancake, it was just Magnolia mm-hmm. restaurant, yeah. yeah. Real real popular, real famous, and then real busy at night. And I ended up sitting at this booth, and I'm reading the one of the uh, Dan Brown books, not Da Vinci Code, the other one, mm-hmm. and I'm reading it, and I look up, and two officers come over and they sit down right across from me and they're having a meal. This is how out of it I was. I looked at them and then I just went right back to reading my book. Ate my meal, chilled, they left, nothing. And that's when I was like, it's not full blown out. But I didn't want to look at Facebook. I didn't want to contact anyone. I didn't want any emotional connection to what had happened, right? But... Uh, that's when my friend Ben reached out to me and said, "Hey, do you know you're all over the news right hmm. now?" Well, and I was like, "Okay." And so then they figured out it was you at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so about 24 hours into it, they figured uh-huh. out it was me, and then I, I had already started to clean Didn't the money. Make them work too hard. <laughs> no, but enough to where they were like, "We want to bring you in for questioning." I see. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, these are when the voices really kick in, as far as like. I can go through Mexico. I can get leave through here. I can leave through there. I could rent a plane. I could do this. I could do that. Blah blah blah. And then the one thing I was like that I kept hearing in my head: you have you have three days and you burned one day, so you got two more days to get out of the country. And then they're gonna flag your passport. I don't know this, but I felt it mm-hmm. like in my head. This is what this this is what I'm hearing. And so it was buy a ticket leaving out of Houston for Europe. So I did. I bought a ticket flying out of Houston. And then it was like, go rent a car, right? And you're going to drive, and you're going to fly out of Atlanta or another place. It's a long, long haul. Dude, uh, I had sold the gun to a pawn shop, and I didn't have a gun on me. but um, And I'm so glad I didn't because I was getting crazier. As I'm driving out, so I cleaned the money. I'm taking off, uh, so it's been 48 hours. I'm taking off. I'm driving across uh, uh, through Louisiana, Mississippi, or whatnot to get to Georgia, to get to Atlanta. Street racing with them. Boom, boom, boom. And then they pull a gun on me as we're driving. Dude, wait, you still had the rock mask? I thought you were there. Was it Vin Diesel? <laughs> that thing's you gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rock. <laughs> Vin Diesel pulls over and goes, hey, damn you, you're going to take over my franchise. <laughs> so, uh, Prophetic. Yeah, it was just crazy. And then finally I snapped out of it, you know, and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm driving. I'm going to get pulled over. I was like, what are you doing, man? It was like the voice in my head was like, do you want to get away with this or not? Hmm. And then, But then there was another voice egging me on. So I was like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, what it, I, what ended up is I, I went to Atlanta. <laughs> I think they were both demons. <laughs> <laughs> They're all like, can we get on the same page here? <laughs> uh, I went to Atlanta. I bought a ticket that day. And I would I would fly out of Maryland and then from Maryland to Frankfurt. Um, 
it was when I was in Maryland. That's when I was sitting there because I had a little, like an hour and a half uh, uh, delay mm-hmm. and uh, layover. And as I was sitting there, as I was getting ready to board the plane, I'm just looking at the police officers around, and I was like, "Have I been flagged yet? Mm-hmm. Have I been flagged yet?" And um, because I bought that ticket in Houston, the U.S. Marshals went and stormed the the Houston mm-hmm. airport uh, and were watching. Waiting for me to fly out, so you but that the as a dummy. In Houston, I got yeah. yeah. How do you know about the Houston? They told thing. us they later. They told you later. Yeah. yeah. They said we saw that you bought the ticket and we were ready for you in Houston. Yeah. And when you bought that ticket in Atlanta, we didn't. It didn't flag. It didn't because we hadn't had a chance to flag your your passport yet. I see. Yeah. So that whole again, where did, did you, I get did three you days pay cash uh, in Atlanta? Uh, I used one of my bank cards and and just you had your ID. But I don't. I don't yeah. Money. I see. Yeah, and I don't. The bank cards aren't tied to your name or nothing yeah. like that. It's just. But, a, but I guess you used your ID to mm-hmm. book the flight. Yep. So they just didn't. They were like, "Oh, he's going out of Houston." Yeah, they but it. Th- yeah, but that. it. They didn't have a chance yet to, to actually flag, flag my else. passport because oh, they. I don't think they had enough information at that time. Well, then how did they know about Houston? Uh, like, did you use a credit I for, card? I for, or yeah, I forget or what the reason Texas, was. Yeah. Well, I forget what the reason was, but they were keen on Houston. They were looking for it. Yeah. The Atlanta purchase, close, yeah, guess, and the Atlanta per, it. yeah, there it was still in state. They didn't know I was out of the state. Yeah, so it's just what I'm figuring. Hmm. So anyway, I ended up flying up. I, I flew to Europe, and um, and arrived there, and that's when I was just like, that's when it started to hit me what was going on, hmm. because I'm like, now my family knows I'm out of the country, and I feel flight of Spain. No, I flew to Frankfurt. To Frankfurt, yeah. And then from Frankfurt, I rented a car, and then I went to uh, Amsterdam. And uh, Ben, I thought, was supposed to meet me in Amsterdam, so I was waiting for him there. I was smoking a lot, and I was buying, you know, a bunch of weed and drinking a bunch. And I was just... But I was in this zombie state, and I was like, I hate this. I feel nothing. I was like, I'm not happy that I'm here. I'm not happy I have this money. I can never see my family again. I can never see anybody I know. And at that point, it hit. Part of the joy of traveling and doing those things was being able to share those experiences with other people. Mm-hmm. Now I had nobody to share that with. And I was like, I got nobody. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, I'm literally 100% alone now. And I've cut myself off from everyone. So I was just absolutely miserable. The depression just set in like a whole nother level. And so uh, eventually what happened is I ended up uh, in Switzerland. Ben met me in Switzerland, and we were hanging out there. Um, and Ben's like, dude, they came after me. They were asking me a bunch of questions. They were, they were looking for you hardcore. You didn't they tell said, them he's going to meet you? Huh? He didn't tell them anything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, he, because uh, he had a big, you know, F the law type of mentality yeah. too. And in his mind, he's like, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. You know, are you sure? He didn't, like, are you sure he didn't tell you? Because I believe we, by the time the U.S. Marshals were, um, like interrogating us mm-hmm. or at least addressing us, it was like, this is what we know, and like, that was very common knowledge that Ben was supposed to meet you in. Oh, really? Europe. Mm. Oh, uh, because uh, his ex-girlfriend at the time, Andrea, Andrea had okay. had shared all this information because oh, we had shared with her. If anything ever goes down, we're gonna. Uh, she had been present for some of those conversations, 
um, just hypothetical what ifs type of thing. So mm-hmm. she probably shared all that. So um, he's like, he's like, dude, you made the uh, headline news ticker. And I was like, what? I was like, why? He goes, well, they said because you were wearing a rock mask. <laughs> they said some guy with a rock mask robbed a, lo- a local movie theater and got away with thirty thousand hey, dollars. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you son of a. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Hart's like, what? You could wear my mask. <laughs> you had to go with the ugly one. Um, that but. <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, it, it was, um, yeah. And, and all I could think of was if I had taken all that money, can you imagine the amount of heat I would be facing right now? So I was like, so they're interested, but they can't be that the interested. You, you would have if, if I, if I take, like oh, and if I had done that, yeah. yeah. Oh, that would have been just, yeah. I would have for sure been on the run without a doubt because I would like. Um, so I spent some time in, in Switzerland and I was like, what the heck am I going to do? I could have gone back to uh, Istanbul. How much and, time has passed? Uh, so this is this is May. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I could have gone back to Istanbul and I knew it all would have been good there and I knew there wasn't going to be any extradition. I, I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do and then that's when I got the idea with Ben. I was like, hey, uh, why don't we take some of this money and invest it and start moving? Because I was like, it's pretty easy to move money, f- drugs from Amsterdam to here. Hmm. And then that led to an idea. Where of, was here? Frankfurt, uh, to to Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah. And, uh, and, my, and drugs were going for a lot more in Switzerland, hmm. so you can make a lot more money. And um, at that point, I'm just like, whatever, man. Like, what's the point? <laughs> um, and then it was like, hey, you can go to Costa Rica and get cocaine for real cheap and fly it over. We could stuff them in candles so they're not scented and we could do one day deliveries because they don't check one day the overnight deliveries as much as other deliveries and blah 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 and so so i'm like okay fine i was like i'm gonna go to i'll go to uh, costa rica because he's like i'll go to costa rica and do it and i was like yeah i don't trust you <laughs> so what happened was i don't know why i had all this money but i didn't want to take a train i wanted to cheap out and take a bus and the bus would take me to Barcelona, and then Barcelona would take me to Madrid, and from Madrid I'd fly out to Costa Rica. When I got to Barcelona, I got there at night, and I had heard, hey, there's a lot of pit pocketers around here, so just keep up, be mindful of your stuff. Nothing I had heard before. I had never been robbed or nothing ever before, mm. uh, except one time in Amsterdam, right after the robbery, my car got broken into, and they took... They didn't take any of my bags or nothing. They just took the GPS thing that I had. Um, but I had never been robbed. I had never experienced anything like that. I have been a very savvy traveler. So while I was there in the bus station, I could have sat there with all the other travelers, but I decided I wanted to be a little someplace quieter. So I go over into the main area, and I sit down. And this has never, ever, ever happened to me before. But I sat there, and then this instant tiredness came over me well right before this happened i was like yeah there's pickpocketers around i should condense everything valuable into one bag put it in your armpits i've never done this before (laughs) ever yeah i took everything that i had passport cameras everything laptop and i put it all into my can into my laptop bag and i put that laptop bag around me and then i had my backpack so i went i went over i sat down on a bench and I'm sitting there, and I've got my bag here, and then this instant 
tiredness just came over me. And I wasn't tired at all. And I was like this. And then somehow my bag f- came from here, and it ended up being between my legs, right? And I'm just sitting there like that. And then at some point I became conscious of a large black man where he was black, but he was wearing a big uh, kind of coat. But I was so tired that I just barely noticed him, and I went right back to sleep. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the worst feeling in the world. I, I the, like I, I want to throw up. It's the worst feeling when you realize, like, your whole world just got kicked out from underneath yeah. you. I was like, I kind of like my bag because I knew it was there. And I looked down. I was like, I don't feel it. I looked down. It's gone. And I'm like, no, no, no. No way. Oh, it's $5 one time. It fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Bastard. It's when you were five. Dude. It was all you it had. Was last week. <laughs> I was... Just, I wanted to kill somebody. I was just looking for someone that I could hurt. I couldn't see the guy, so I started running around. I was like, where the hell is this guy? I'm going to freaking kill him. I'm going to kill him, right? And I'm like looking for my knife. I was like, I put my knife in the bag. I was like, where's my taser? I was like, I put my freaking taser in the bag. They let you go with the taser overseas? Yeah, yeah I know. They, they didn't. They, yeah, it was a different time. They, and they really didn't know what it was because it was just, anyway. Uh, I had it in my carry-on. Okay. And your carry-on? Yeah. I mean, that's, Wow. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I get a the the I see a police officer. I said, I want to see those cameras, and he goes, those cameras don't work. And I was like, and then he's like, what happened? I like, what do I do? Do I tell cooperate with the police? And I was like, well, it's, it's what it is now. And I was like, they took my bag. And I said, they took passport, everything. And he goes, okay, well, let's go and we'll file the information. I'm like, and at that point, I'm like, I'm like, what the heck am I gonna do? And the voices are like. What did you do? You freaking idiot. I can't believe you let that happen. Now you got to make it up, blah, blah, blah. And they said, go to the police department because they have guns. And you need something to help you reset. So I was like, fine. I go over there. I sit down. And I'm back to prey mode, predator mode. And I'm just watching the police officers. I'm watching how they handle their guns. I'm watching where they're going. I'm watching like who might be a little weaker and blah, blah. And... As they're filing the report, that's all I'm doing is just watching this. <laughs> no, no, Spain. Spain. I'm, yeah, in Barcelona. <laughs> they're <laughs> suave, yes. <laughs> the Swiss, I think. They they're pretty freaking tough, man. They have like, uh, what is it, a year? Place. They have a year that they have to serve in the military, and mm-hmm. so they all have guns in their in yep. every house. Yeah, they're ready you for it. You could have done that. Yeah. They're ready for it, yeah. <laughs> they're ready that's for a defense. Uh, so we, um, so anyway... I'm just at that point. That's when the spiritual battle really kicks in because now I've got this idea in my head of you've got to do this to get back because you've got nothing. I got like forty euro in my pocket, nothing else, and well, then you consolidated <laughs> everything. Yeah, you could at least like okay, pocket here, pocket there. Let's uh-huh. let's diversify. That's like rule number one with like with, I said with money. <laughs> never in my life have I done any, especially when I was traveling. Did I ever do anything like this? Yeah. So what happened was I ended up spending. Um, I ended up spending about two weeks in Barcelona homeless. Hmm. And I was battling this internal struggle to want to fix my problem by violently robbing somebody else. 
And I was like, if I don't have a gun, I'm going to have to crack somebody over the head with a brick. If I don't do that, I was like, I've got to force this to happen. And so, but the whole time, I couldn't imagine bringing that type of violence on, like, a people that were not violent. I mean, mm-hmm. especially at that time, like, violence was was a very unheard of thing. Um, and so, I just couldn't bring myself to doing it. And then finally, at some point, I was like, God, I said, look, if you're there and you don't want me to do this, because if I do it, I don't think I'm coming back. I haven't, I haven't crossed this bridge yet, but if I cross that bridge, I don't think I'm coming back. And I was like, you got to provide a way. And one thing led to another where I actually ran across somebody that I actually knew mm. from the hostel I'd been staying at in Switzerland. I just randomly saw him on the street. Yeah. And he's like, hey. And he didn't know what was about to happen. He's like, hey. And I'm like, hey. And he's like, what's going on? You know, we're like, I was like, dude, I got robbed of everything. Now, nobody knows why I'm in Europe. I'm just yeah. a traveler. Yeah. So he's like, oh, man. And I think he felt obligated to just not let me, because he, he knew me enough. We'd have enough conversations to not just let me. He lived there locally in Switzerland. He was, and... Uh, and he was an American? No, I think he was Italian. Yeah. But he lived there in Switzerland. And, um, but he just felt obligated to like, I can't just let this guy, you know, yeah. whatever. So he's like, hey, I'm, I'm staying with a friend. I'm actually visiting. You, you can crash at our place. So I crashed at his place this for was after being two weeks homeless. Yeah. Wow. So I where'd you and where'd you live? On the streets. I was sleeping at the bus station. I was looking for that guy. I was yeah. like, if I see him, I will. I will kill him. <laughs> like I, I already made up that in my mind. I was like, I will. I will. I have no problem murdering someone. I followed gypsies to their communities to try to figure out where they were. Where if I could see this guy. And how'd you eat? Uh, just I had forty euros, so I scrounged that as much as I could. Um, I ended up begging for food or for money for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I did steal a little bit um, here and there. But I didn't want to do that too much because I didn't want to get trouble with the cops. And then yeah. they bring me in and they're like, oh, hey, he's wanted in the States. I was trying to stay off the grid. So just being with that guy for that little bit gave me just enough breathing room to reach out to Ben and say, hey, you need to send me some money so I can come over, come back over there because I need to reset. And um, so Ben's like, hey, I can do that, but I already told my Russian friends that we're supposed to be doing this, and they put things in works, so we kind of owe them a debt. And I was like, great. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, so I was like, great. I was like, look, he goes, I, I, so anyway, I ended up going back and kind of hopping trains a little bit to get back to Switzerland. I ended up in Switzerland. And when we got there, they're like... Real quick, before you go into that, back in the police station, first of all, they didn't run your ID or anything like that to figure out. I didn't have it. You didn't give them them any information. You're just like, I don't have a passport. Yeah. And they're cool with that? Well, I I mean, there's no way for them to check. At that point, there was... It was 2009... And it was Spain, yeah. Brazil. I mean, Barcelona. Barcelona yeah. They they were not um, like everything wasn't streamlined like it is now. So okay. they were worried about Barcelona FC. And this yeah. was happening. Yeah. So there were so many other travelers that were coming in. Like okay. I got my stuff stolen. Yeah. But so, then with the police with the guns, you decided not to. Right. But just just grab out of the gun. Just well, I wouldn't have grabbed it. I, what I would what I was what I did is I followed I followed one of them down this alley. I saw where they were going down this alley. So leaving the station, and it's got like these narrow streets, and I saw this alley, and I was like, 
I would see that some of them would come down this alley yeah. every now and then. So I was just going to follow one of them, crack them over the head, take their gun, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And that was your point of no return. So you talked yeah. to God and you were like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's like, this. if I do this, I don't I don't see myself coming back because now I've got literally nothing to lose. I see. Zero. Yeah. And, um, so then how did you get into Switzerland when you took the trains because you don't have a passport? Well, because it's uh, Schengen, so you don't need a passport to go country to country Okay, inside, inside the European zone. Mm-hmm. And Switzerland, even though it's not part of the EU, is still part of the Schengen, so you can go in and out without a passport. Um, and again, I was hopping trains, so if I did see, like every now and then, they would have like a train police come by and would ask for a passport, I would just go into the bathroom. Hmm. And wait for them to pass by, and then come back yeah. out. Um, Ticket, so. please. You push them to the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very. Uh, well, what what happened was I got back to Switzerland. I got back to the ho- hotel hostel, and Ben's like, "Do they? Uh, uh, <laughs> we got to do something, man." And, the Russians. Yeah, 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 and 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 also it's like, look, you, I don't have money for you. I can't just I thought support. He was loaded. Well, he was kind of fake about that. Oh, but, okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, he's like, "Hey, I was I've kind of planned on living off you for a little bit." Shut up, Siri. Always listening in. Um, so anyway, um, uh, the uh, can't hear when you put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll stop hitting the button. But um. So so yeah so it was just it was just kind of like then it became like hey we can do this we can do that we can go help them or you can go hit this they have a a, a local Ghana drug dealer doing this they have some Albanians doing that you can go take them out and move it on their turf and blah 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 or do this or do that and everything was violent and then um, finally I was like dude I was like. It was like, or you can just rob the hostel, the places, the people that are there. And I was like, okay. I was like, what happened was at one point, um, I remember just sitting there. The hostel was quiet. um, And uh, I was by myself. And what happened was I was sitting there and I hadn't looked up. a. So it's like mid-June, I think. And I hadn't looked up a mail, nothing like that. I hadn't opened my email or nothing. So I just was like, screw it. I, there was a local computer that was there at the hostel. I went over and I logged into my email. And the first thing that pops up is an email that had just come in from Andrew. Mm. And, 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 and on it, I was like, shoot, man. I was like, well, let's see what he has to say. You this know? is how many months? Oh, uh, this is about a month and a half from. Oh, a month and a half. Yeah. Okay, and you had had no contact. No contact from anybody. He had heard family. no one, no where I really knew too much about me or where I was yeah. or what was going on. And the email was like, "Hey, I'm not really sure why you did what you did, but I'm just reaching out to you again, and I just want you to know that um, some I felt like somebody should tell you, Dad had a stroke, and um, it was pretty bad, but he um, he's." He's starting to recover, and and then there he said, "I don't want to put this on you, but they said it was stress related, and so, but I just you, you needed to know, yeah. and something about that with everything that was going on, because I knew I could fix my situation, but to fix my situation, I would have to move up to another level of violence to do it. I would actually move into the violence to do it, 
And for me, something about with as unemotional as I was and as detached as I was, was going to be too much for me to be able to come back. And I just kind of knew that. I could see that in myself um, about how far I was progressing. And I remember just kind of like, I was like, I either am going to hurt somebody right now or I I need an outlet. I need an outlet. And so thankfully the whole place was empty. So I get up and I'm just like, I walk in and I, I don't know why this happened. I have no idea. But I walk into the back where our, our beds are at. The room's empty. Sun's out. Beautiful day. I'm in absolute agony. And I want to hurt. I want to do something. I don't know how to take it out. I don't know what to do. And I look in my backpack, right? Because I still... Uh, so how do I explain this? I got robbed one more time when I was in <laughs> Barcelona, and they took my backpack with my clothes. I just happened to have a backup backpack there at the hostel. Mm-hmm. All right, the backpack I had was the one that I had been traveling with when I was in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. I had just left it at that same hostel. What? Yeah. For and they kept it for a couple of years. Yeah. Well, they just put it in the closet, and so they were like, "Oh yeah, we, you left your backpack here." I was like, "Oh and yeah, cool, you. thanks." Yeah. Yeah, because I'd stay there before. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I had had that backpack, so I was living off the clothes and stuff that I had had in that backpack. (laughs) My Bible was in that backpack. So I don't know, I I forget why, but I had pulled that Bible out and I put it up on top of one of the beds or something. And as I walk in the room, I look at the Bible and I'm just like, and I walk over it and I open it up and I let it flip open and I'm just kind of like doing this and I'm just like, I'm on the verge of just absolutely losing it. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm like, so I look over and I look at the Bible and it's Hosea chapter two. And it's talking about the uh, Hosea talking. It's it's basically the harlot mm-hmm. that is trying to escape God and trying every which way to do it and, and going to the things that th- she thought would bring her joy and always take comfort and all this stuff. And as those things are removed she's driven into the wilderness. And what broke me was the part in verse 14 where he says, when you get to this place of death, when you, and and being an insecure person, I always thought if a woman ever (coughs) cheated on me and I I had a chance to get vengeance on her, I would tell her what a slut she was and how horrible she was and I would spit in her face and I would tell her about how much I hated her for what, you know, she did to me. So when I got to verse 14 and I was like, I felt so identified with that, that, that woman that was running away and being driven into the wilderness because everything had failed her that she thought was good and true. When God had his chance, or Hosea had his chance to do something, to drive the nail home, it says, and there I will speak kindly to her. Hmm. And then I just felt like God saying, like, like, I love you. I still love you. And you're not and 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 I've always loved you and you're not totally damaged. I just yeah. kind of felt that lock in and I lost it. I cried, I cried, I cried, I cried. And I said, God, how can you do anything with me? How can you take me back? I said, look at what I've done. Um I said I'm a freaking monster. I said I, I want to do monstrous things. And um and blah blah blah. And uh I just kind of was just this um it wasn't this is hard for me to explain cuz it was it was like I will take you back, but you know what you have to do. 
you've got to you've got to start you've got to start coming to me you've got to you can't it's like the prodigal son story mm-hmm. right yeah he had to realize the situation he was in but then he had to make the journey back yeah. with no money no funds back to his father right like so he had to put repentance he yeah. had to yeah he had to make that repentant journey he had to, and i just now that i look back on it in that story for him to make the journey back he would have had to go through his hometown where everybody knew that he had left and to come back in rags and shame like that he would have to be willing to make that journey and so i just knew that it was like you will find me at the end of this road and i will get you to the end of this road but it will not be an easy road to get back to but i'm here and i will get you back but you've got to make that journey back so at that point, in that moment, I made up my mind. I will not hurt anybody again, even if it costs me my life. I will never, I will never do anything to bring harm uh, to somebody again to better myself, and I will never take advantage of any anybody else to better myself. And it, I was like, I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go hungry. I won't do that. And so when I made that decision. I left in the. Uh, I left in the. A uh, few days later, I left in the middle of the night, um, and uh, started hopping trains. Mm. And I knew that I couldn't get extradited out of Switzerland, so I had to go to Germany or I had to go to the closest embassy I could. And when I did my research, I was like, "Well, I tried to turn myself in in a consulate, and uh, I contacted the consulate in, in Frankfurt and some other places, and they're like, you got to go to Berlin if you want to do something <laughs> like that.' Okay. And I was like, "Okay." Um, Don't you guys want me? <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a long journey. I actually ended up spending about a. Uh, I didn't want to turn myself in, mm-hmm. so I was fighting it the whole time. But I kept moving towards. And then when people, when every now I would open up to someone saying, "Hey, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to turn myself in." The Europeans were like, would start crying and be like, "Please don't do that." And I'm like, why? And they said, because we've heard of your prisons. They're horrible. Mm. And they said, you can stay here. You don't have to turn yourself in. And I was like, no, this is part of my journey. I have to do this. And so little by little, I kept hopping trains and, and sleeping on park areas and benches and da-da-da. Because, again, I would not do anything, take advantage of anyone. And it was amazing the amount of generosity that was shown to me along the way mm. by the most random people. Mm. Um, when I was in Frankfurt, uh, no, I'm sorry. When I was in Freiburg, I spent about a month in Freiburg trying to build up my... I love Freiburg. It was a great place. I knew how to stay there without spending money much. But um, I was trying to build up the, the the will to do it. And I met this one guy there, and he reminded me a lot of you. And he told me his Very story. Handsome. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's Very exactly sure. what I was going for. <laughs> um, Compliant. <laughs> compliant easy to get money off to of do, <laughs> doesn't doesn't interrupt me when i'm talking <laughs> bribe him with whiskey yeah, obviously <laughs> well it's, it's the good stuff too <laughs> yeah not rye whiskey though that crap um so but he told me his story and his story was that he was going to commit suicide and that um before he was about to commit suicide he said you know what why not just travel the world for a little bit. You know, I've never seen any of this stuff and maybe it'll change my mind. You know, maybe there's a reason for living. So he's telling me a story and I'm like, man, I want to tell you what's going on with me, but I can't really tell you what's going on with me. I was like, man, I just been there. So we, we had spent a lot of time talking and stuff like that. 
I reached out to a friend of mine, Israel, the guy that I travel with. He had, he was living in Latvia at the time, and I was like, hey, if I, I would like to talk to you before I turn myself in and explain myself as best as I can. You texting, emailing? Uh, I was emailing him, yeah. and and I didn't hear anything back. My contact, oh, all my contacts that I had in Europe, I had emailed them, and I had never heard back from any of them, mm-hmm. right? And so and these are people I stayed with. These are people I knew, but. Every single one of them were on vacation during this time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would find out later after I turned myself in and blah, blah, blah. They would email me and be like, hey, I just got your email. Are you still here? Right? Um, when I finally got to Berlin, uh, I ended up, uh, I went to the uh, U.S. Embassy. And I'm not saying this is how it is still, but I went to the U.S. Embassy. And I, I walked in and I said, hey, I don't have a passport, um, but I need to talk to your uh head of security or your head consulate or whatever. And I said, and I, and I said, look, I'm wanted for a crime back in the U S I need to talk to them about how I need to resolve this. So I went in and I sat down with whoever the head of the U S consulate there or, or the, who was ever in charge of, uh, uh, at the U S embassy and, and, uh, uh, Berlin and also whoever was head of their security. I said, look, without incriminating myself, Right now, or do anything like that. I'll just tell you that I'm wanted for a, uh, for a crime back in San Antonio, blah, blah, blah. And I want to turn myself in, so I need to know how to do it. And they said, well, we don't really do that here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what do I do? And they said, well, we can arrange for you to fly commercially back. And I was like, um, okay, let's do that. And they said, all right, so it's going to be about a week, and then you'll be able to fly out. So um, I contacted Israel. Hey, I'm in Berlin. I want to talk to you before I leave, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I wait for the week, and the whole time, again, it's kind of like the voices come back. Mm-hmm. If you do this, if you do this, you're like, you'll know. And you're like, it's hard. For, the most precious thing I ever had in my life, and I knew what I was, the most precious thing I've ever had in my life was my freedom. Mm. My greatest nightmare ever is being locked up. Mm. Like, it's for me, it was worse than drowning. It was worse than death. I felt nothing emotionally until I thought about being locked up. So I did my research, and I was like, look, I can maybe get away with five years if I turn myself in and blah, blah. So it was at the U.S. Embassy. I contacted my family for the first time, my mom and dad. And uh, they were like, hey, let's just talk about how to get you back, and then we'll deal with everything there. And they said, look, uh, we're going to—the U.S. Marshals are here, and they say if you're willing to comply, they'll work with us. I said, yes. I said, just tell them— I'm turning myself in. I'm willing to comply. I'm not going to offer any type of resistance. This is what's happened so far. Blah blah blah. And um, so and this is about what like three uh, so, months in. Yeah. Or? So this is August. So it's you know, it's like mid-August. So how many months? Is um, that? It's oh, been it's four March, months from March. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's since May. So May, June, yeah, July, and then five. August. So uh, anyway, um, there was enough time for me to to run again. And they told me, they said, hey, look, you can run, but we're telling you that we'll help you right now, work with you right now, but if you run again, then you don't have any leverage with us at all. So I said, no, I'm going to comply, I will. But that week, oh, <laughs> in Berlin, I'm just walking around, and I'm like, I'm like, I this time I accepted the zombie thing mm-hmm. because I was like, I don't want to feel anything because I'll change my mind. Mm-hmm. And I and it was just a crazy week, man. I finally ended up 
boarding the plane. I've the the way it goes is I was supposed to fly into Newark, New Jersey, and from Newark I think I fly into San Antonio. Um, when I arrived in Newark, right, I get off the plane. I'm one of the last ones to get off, and there's U.S. Marshals there, hmm. and I didn't think about it. I didn't, I thought I would be able to fly into San Antonio. <laughs> they pick yeah. they picked me up in Essex, and high profile now. Yeah, handcuffed me, take me in, and they were like, uh, they were just like. Hey, uh, so it's pretty crazy what you did. And I was like, just didn't say anything. And they were like, uh, usually most people don't just turn themselves in like this. It's kind of weird. And then I was like, yeah. and uh, I said, what's going to happen? They said, we're going to take you to Essex and they're going to process you and then they'll figure out extradition. I didn't know. They were talking Greek. I didn't know what they were saying. Mm. All I can say about Essex is this. I, for some reason, I shaved my head bald. And I was pale as a ghost. I don't know why. <laughs> um, I arrived there from Berlin, Germany, shaved head, pale as a ghost. And as they're processing and intake me, I had that Bible, and I took a book from their from the the hostel shelves. It was Blue Light Jazz, mm. uh, yeah. and I think I had one of the Twilight books because I was like, I need something <laughs> to read. And I was like, it's terrible, but I got it. And as I'm processing. Uh, and then I think I had a devotional book that I had gotten from someone or mm. whatever, a thin little prayer book from St. Francis or whatever. Uh, Fenelon, yeah. that was. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, so I'm sitting there, and I'm in intake, and the this big, like six, seven, bald-headed, big old black sergeants there intaking me. And he gets to my stuff and property, he's putting everything aside, and he gets to the Bible and the books, and he looks at me, and then he looks at this, and then he goes, dude, you're going to need this. And he shows it across to me, and I'm like, okay. I didn't know at the time. I've never, ever seen anybody ever, ever allow to have property. Hmm. No, property's never given back to you, especially a book. Yeah. Ever. Hmm. He gave me my three or four books back, and I think it was just because he's like, you're dead. Because I'm, I look like a, a, a skinhead yeah. is what, I'm look, is what yeah. I look like. I didn't know it, but Essex is like 98%, 99% African-American. Hmm. And, and it's run by the, it's run by the bloods. And so. It's a gang. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not the, not, not the, the Boy blue Scout blo- bloods. Not the blue bloods of, of Essex County. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it honestly was the, it was the worst I've to say that God's hand of protection was on me is like the understatement. I watched white guys get smashed in that holding cell. Mm. I watched just some really crazy stuff. But for whatever reason, I was the only person with property, and no one ever tried to take, ever tried to take anything from me. They asked me to read my book every now and then. They'd ask me to read the Bible to them every now and then. Mm. These are the black guys? Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or who, yeah, yeah. Because almost everybody I was there was black, yeah. But for some, but they did, they weren't. They, they wouldn't they touch didn't me. See you as a threat. They, they didn't. Just, t- they didn't touch so. me. They didn't. They didn't. They. Didn't, they never. Uh, it was almost like they looked out for me in a weird way. Oh, you're a nice skinhead. But so he's got the Bible. I spent three days in a holding tank with seventy other guys, and and then finally they processed me and they put me inside. And I was like, how long am I supposed to be here? And they said, you could be here six months. You could be here for longer. You, you're, 
you're in Essex, man. You can get lost in the system in a heartbeat. The first guy I get locked up, they put me in a cell with, and they put you in this like, um, uh, it's like a monitoring cell or Looks whatever. Like we're getting oh. low on battery here. Okay. You want to switch it out, and then I'll uh, I'll start tailoring everything down. Yeah, I'm putting it first. Two. Ready? Dude! All right. No, no, no. I got it. Dude! <laughs> All right. Oh, there we go. Mm. Prison really messed me up. Okay. Uh, so, um, I'm going to say the whiskey was in a tre- tremendous investment. I should have... I, I was going to get the angel. What's the... Huh? Angel's Envy? I was going to get an Angel's Envy, but it was like, I don't know, it was like a half a liter more. And I was like, "Ah, there's no way that they... (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. We're going to I know, I know, but... We're going to leave. I know, but I I was thinking like, uh, it would just sit there. No one's going to drink it. (laughs) So, yeah. And it's the wheat version, so I went with uh, something. The guy recommended something that's a little buttery. You like it? Is it good? Good. It's good. Yeah, it's good. And when the little I'm, shock keeps it, me awake too. Yeah. <laughs> when I when when I'm uh, it'll do donkey. Battle yeah, too. Yeah. So my first uh, when when they put you in this place uh, um, for observation, or whatever, you're in there for 23 hours, 23 hours and 45 minutes a day, and then you get 15 minutes out of your cell to mm-hmm. either take a shower or make a phone call, <coughs> whichever you if they decide to let you out that day, because um, things could go down. And they put us in there. Um, my my celly that they put me in, I swear, he looked exactly like DMX. Rest in peace. Exactly like him. And <laughs> he had he had just beat a double murder charge, and he was in there for some type of aggravated battery or whatever. Blah blah blah. But for whatever reason, me and him hit it off right off the bat. And um, again, I just think that this comes down to that. God speaking those words of just being like, look, it's going to be a long journey back, but I will be with you and I'll get you through to the end. Hmm. Um, and it just felt like I was I was living in that, but that didn't mean I wasn't miserable. I was beyond miserable. I was... Um, miserable and, because you were locked up? Miserable because I was locked up. Miserable because of what I had done with my life. Um, just the depression had never left. It had just kind of been abated for and it changed and morphed in different ways. Um, and then when I had a task at hand, like turning myself in, it helped kind of like dole it out, but it was still there. So I ended up spending 30-something days, I think, in Essex. And um, it was actually DMX. I'll just keep calling him DMX. It was... He, he had a, a lady friend who was a lawyer who actually contacted my parents and said, hey, I can get him out, and blah, blah, blah. And so because of that, you know, again, I didn't get stuck in the system. I was able to process out, but it still took 30 days. Um, then they put you in an extradition, so I was like, oh, Con Air. I swear to God. thought it. I was like, oh, okay, they're going to fly me out. Con Air style. They put you in this dog kennel that's converted into, it's got these, I got a big butt, but these chairs are, these these benches on the side are metal. They're about this wide, and they're hard metal, 
and you sit down and they chain your feet, they chain your hands, they chain uh, they chain you from your hands to your feet, and then they chain you to the other guy next to you. So they're, you're in that thing for 48 hours, and then they have to pull over and let you shower and pee and rest and whatnot. 48 hours in that thing is... And, and the worst part is they don't go straight from Newark to San Antonio. Hmm. They take whichever route they're sent on to pick up and drop off other people. So I ended up being in that thing for three weeks. <laughs> I was in there for about two, two weeks, two this and a half. Was like a big van type thing? It wasn't a big van. No? It was a small It was a small... It was, small, it was I li- literally a yeah. dog kennel that had been hollowed out is what it looked like. It was so small. No, but... It's not just you. It's a bunch of other people. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so at, how big is this vehicle? Yeah. So at, at at the most, they can fit eight or ten of a eight of eight of us back there crammed in. Mm. So four on each bench, oh. sitting across from each other. <coughs> I don't know how to describe what that is like because the converse, the only way that you can get by is you have to talk to the people around you, or you got to listen to their stories, dude. It was one of the guys that I ended up spending most of the time in the cage in the in the kennel extradition truck with ended up being one of the better known assassins that the gangs used to take out their competition. And he was just a little guy too. Hmm. But that too was cold blooded. Uh and I just saw some crazy stuff with, with them. Uh and, and it was a very long journey. Um uh, we got stuck in uh, Kentucky in some transit situation that was going on there. I saw a riot go down that I almost got caught up in. Uh, I saw the assassin uh, duke it out with uh, some white boy, um, and and that was crazy just because of how it played out. And I just saw a lot of just crazy things going on, and I'm just like, but nothing was still as bad as Newark. So Newark was by far the worst, without a doubt, just because the, the, the conditions you're in are just third world at best. Extradition was horrible in its own right, but it wasn't as bad as Newark. When I finally, uh, so after I got picked up, and it, it, it ended up being two months of from the time I got picked up in, in uh, Newark to the time mm-hmm. I actually got to Bear County. when I kid you not, this is how bad it was. When I got to Bear County, without exaggeration, I literally felt like I was walking in Club Med. <laughs> I was I was like, this place is awesome. I was. I was like, it was, I, <laughs> it, it was just such a trip, man. It really was. And I was so grateful to be there. And yeah. Uh, it, I was in familiar territory. I felt my family wasn't too far away. I didn't really care how long I was going to be locked in. They got me out pretty quick, actually. They got me out within... Um, Two weeks? No, no, no. Like five days after I arrived. Um, the the lawyer that we had, Ed. Uh, yeah, they... I saw you twice when I came in. No. It, you saw me when I after I got locked up. Nobody saw me on visit when I was there. Um, the first time I saw anybody was when they, when I, they processed me and I made bail. Mm-hmm. And I came out, and uh, I forget, like, I, I, they had to tell my mom and dad, hey, he doesn't have any clothes. 
So you're going to have to bring him some clothes. So dad brought me whatever clothes, and he met me outside. I remember walking down that hallway and seeing him and just being like, the combination of relief and Mm -hmm. shame was just, yeah. And then I'm like, I'm the cause of your stroke, you know? What did he he say? Or what was his his interaction? The, I mean, he just embraced me, you know? And I couldn't, I couldn't process how he wasn't, um, just disgusted with me. I couldn't process that. I, I, I didn't understand how he could hug me and for there not to be condemnation and hate in his eyes. I just didn't understand that. I know I, to this day, I probably won't be able to understand that for a long time. Mm Um, but and then when I got home, mom met me outside, and then, were you there? No, Scott was there. Mm-hmm. And I saw them, and I and, and I just kind of broke down. I was just like, I mean, what do you say? I mean, he just, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I was just so uh, uh, sh- shell-shocked. And, and again, what I wanted to do and what would end up being the next two and a half years of my life was, I wanted to run away because I couldn't deal with the shame. Mm-hmm. But it was the shame of what I had done to my family that kept me from running away. Interesting. And it was every single day, every single day for two and a half years, I I had to make a decision not to run away. Mm-hmm. I had to make a decision because I, I was working, I was saving money yeah. to pay off my debts to the lawyer and to start paying restitution back. I had more money because uh, just working and being consistent and all that type of stuff than I'd ever have in my life. At some point, I had $10,000 in my account, and I was like, I could start over completely right now. And I was just like, I, then what happened was I utilized my depression to my advantage. I turned off my emotions, and I became dead inside. And I just was like, and I, I just put my head down internally, mentally, and I was like, you're going to stand before a judge and they're going to tell you what's going to happen. You may get probation, which is what everyone thought. You may get a little bit of time, Mm -hmm. but you're going to go there. And that's what I was like, you're not running away. You're not doing this to your family again. You know, F you, do it. Mm -hmm. And so I was just, every single day, it was that. And it was every single day I was just constantly in that depression state, but using the depression. I didn't want to push the depression mm-hmm. because the depression was keeping me from from booking it. Mm-hmm. I could I could stay detached and, and, and unemotional if I did that. And so what I did is I did that for two and a half years. I was on bond for two and a half years. And then um, uh, finally, uh, December, you know, it's crazy. I can't remember the exact date. I think it's the 6th or the 11th. I think it's like the 17th. No, wasn't that far. It was like it was mid. It was like right before Christmas. Yeah, I think it was eleventh. Yeah, because it's the seventeenth. Well, somewhere right around that time. Yeah, I think it was. I'll have to ask Chris. Chris actually remembers. I can't believe I can't remember. Uh, it's in my paperwork. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, all the way up until that point, I was like, "You can run. You can run. You can run. You can run." And then um, I specifically emptied my account of everything I had so I wouldn't be able to. Hmm. And 
I was in depression because I wouldn't deal with, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to deal with it. I I just told Ed, our lawyer, just do the best you can. You know, I didn't want to talk to anyone about it. I didn't want to, I just was so detached. So the day that it happened, I had no more money in my account. I hadn't thought anything. I was like, everyone thought I was going to get probation, Mm. but because even our my cop friends were like, yeah, you know, I overheard the DA saying that they're expecting you to get probation. Mm. Everyone thought I was getting probation. In my gut, I was like, I'm going to prison. I thought two years max. Yeah. Two years max behind nine months. Something yeah. Like something yeah. like that. So everyone, every single person told me, you're getting probation. In my gut, I was like, I was already preparing myself to go to prison. So um, when I get there, my depression wouldn't let me research what I could, how I could make this transition easy. Mm -hmm. So all I knew is from my previous little journey there, a few things, but outside of that, I didn't know anything. So we get to the courthouse. I've got family there. I've got friends and blah, blah. We go through. I share to the judge everything that I could. Oh, oh, okay. So real quick, during this two and a half years, at first, what happened was they said, okay, this is what they got you for, the palladium, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And they said, I think we can get you probation. We're pretty pretty good on 10-year probation. I think we can get you there. He said, I can't make any promises. Lawyers don't like to make promises, but they're saying, pretty, felt pretty good about it. Yeah. About a few weeks in, they come in and say, hey, uh, they're, uh, they have you on another warrant. I was like, what? I said, they're blaming me for something else. And they said... Yeah, they said you did another robbery. I said, I haven't done another. What are you talking about? I was literally in my car. I didn't drive home. I went to stay at a hotel because I'm ready to go on the run again. Because I'm like, now they're going to charge. They're, they're stacking stuff up on me, and they're charging me with fake stuff. And I was like, oh, man. And they said, yeah. And they said, uh, they, they think you uh, robbed a Starbucks. I was like, I didn't rob a Starbucks. What are you talking about? Hmm. And so they, and they, they said, look, we will deal with it, but you got to turn yourself in. you got to come in. That was hard. Hmm. And so when my dad's like, hey, they're look- the cops showed up. They're looking for you. I can't believe you did this. And I said, Dad, I didn't do anything, hmm. right? 100%, it was completely hmm. gone from my memory. Yeah. When the lawyer sat me down and said, here's the, uh, uh, the, the packet. Uh, yeah. the, no, 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 what they have on you. Um, I forget, I'm forget the name of it right now. But, it's like an evidence packet or something. Yeah. And and they said, read through it. And I looked at it, and I'm just like, I'm in zombie mode, so I'm just looking at words, and I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about, Ed. I said, how in the world are we, I was like, how in the world am I supposed to deal with this? How many other things are they going to start putting on me? Because hmm. there were similarities yeah. and stuff like that. He was like, you didn't do it. I said, no. And he said, it doesn't matter to me. And I said, Ed, I barely remember the palladium. They actually had to get me to go to see a psychiatrist. Mm. To, to to talk to me to try to unlock like why like why I had dead spots yeah because they're like hey this happened and I said no it didn't happen they said yeah you're on camera I said that happened and I was like dang I was like well this is what I remember yeah and so I was like look I must I, I just I don't remember anything about this blah 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 so yes when they brought the Starbucks thing up and I'm like I don't remember yeah. I wasn't like trying to save my butt. I was like, 
I don't know what I did. What yeah. the heck did I do during that time? There was such a disconnect going on with me. Um, so when I stood before the judge, um, a week before, I had told Ed, I said, hey, Ed, I said, if I have to go to prison, I said, I'm not going to blame you. I said, you know, because the whole time I was like, only get me probation, only get yeah. me. My family's like, only get probation, only get probation. Yeah. Finally, I just came up to him. And I said, "Look, if I end up with uh, prison, then it's not going to destroy me. Like I understand what it is." And he's like, "Really?" And I was like, "I think at that point he's like, oh, I can negotiate something or whatever. I don't." Yeah. But when I stood there and that came up, they were like, "Look, we're going to take we're taking in the, the the Starbucks robbery into consideration in this, um, meaning that that is now going to be looped into this." Second. It's going to be looped into this, and it's going to be a closed case along with this when we rule with it. Oh. And that's what Ed was explaining to me. Yeah. He's like, look, the, t- the two are going to be, one's going to be in consideration, and one you're actually going to be charged with. Yeah. And so when that law, when when it came to the sentencing, and the judge said, I'm sentencing you to uh, uh, 10 years. 10 years, yeah. I was like, I'm zombie still. Yeah. I'm like, did he just say 10 years? I think he said 10 years. Wait a minute. I think I heard that if you get sentenced with aggravated robbery, you got to get, you got to, anything aggravated, you got to do 50%. And I'm not really good with math, but (laughs) I think I have to do five years. Yeah. And that's how my mind's processing this whole thing. And I hear the dead fall behind me, Mm. but this is where my head's at. And I remember I sat, I went, I sat down and they were handcuffing me. And I look at my family, and they were in total shock. Mm-hmm. And I remember I just said, I think I looked at them and I said something like, I love you, it's going to be fine, mm-hmm. or yeah. something like that. that. Yeah. I don't remember what I said. Or, I, remember, I at least remember it's going to be okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Check. It's okay. Yeah. Kind of like, I'm not stressing, yeah. I accept it, it is what it is. Um, Did you have any thought of appealing at that moment, or you're just like no? Once you put it before a judge to rule, yeah. um, then you are giving up the right for appeal. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So we were kind of taking a risk because they the DA wanted uh, 18. Well, yeah. Okay. So, so the DA, the ma- what was the max they could get? Uh, fifteen? No, no, no. They but they, they said 18. twenty. Oh, 20. 20. No, it yeah. Was, it was fifteen. It was twenty. It was eight. <coughs> they start. It was twenty. They started with eighteen, and and actually they, on an aggregate, they pleaded, they pleaded down to a max of fifteen. Huh? You you pleaded down to a max of fifteen years. Oh oh yeah 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 yeah. And like, where like the Starbucks case would not be considered. Well, like where it would not be held like, against me, or they can't come back after me. Back. So yeah. like, uh, but the the DA was still able to mention it. Yes. As, as like, hey, this guy's got a streak. Is, yeah, exactly. it's not it's, it's like, not a so, first so time offense. So it was able to be mentioned to weigh and on the judge yeah. without it being official. And so it basically means That's that sneaky. I think it added on extra time to you. Well, not just that. Um, later, Ed's like, "Hey, he goes, he goes. It's uh, he goes. I mean, you uh, you robbed one of the beloved companies here in San Antonio. They're going to come after you hard. It's a high profile case." He goes, "Honestly, it's one of the reasons I took it. Yeah. And I and I wanted it." And he goes, "Because it's a high profile case." I'm like, "High profile? What the heck?" But 
It just yeah. at that time it was, you know, it's just local. Antiques, they do a lot for our community. <laughs> They're amazing. I won't look <laughs> just because uh, whatever I did has no reflection on them. There, <coughs> uh, I, I. So I, I, I what I like vividly remember is uh, us showing up to the sen- sentencing, and it was me, Sandy. I don't believe Autumn was there. Um, Autumn was our youngest at the time. She was. Almost two. two. Yeah. Um, or she was two and almost, but um, almost three. But it was, uh, she, was she, she, she wasn't actually two yet because Winter um, hadn't been conceived yet. But, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but I remember just showing up and like kind of like going through like the rigors of the sentencing and like being in this like surreal state and hearing them like make their case and from a logic standpoint, the DA stating like, I remember specifically they stated, it's like, so it's like, I see that you were able to plead out the Starbucks robbery and kudos for you because that is good lawyering and that's what they said? Yeah. Yeah, see, I don't remember all of this. It was like, that was, that's, that's good lawyering on your part. Uh, and that's her maneuvering with the judge. Maneuvering yeah. with the judge mm. to, like, still have the case, the Starbucks case, yeah. that you consider without, with, like, it was already pleaded out, mm-hmm. but now bringing it back mm-hmm. to get what they want. Yeah. And I think the reason they were able to do that is because I told Ed uh, a few weeks before, if I have to go to prison, I accept it. I'm not going to hold it against well, you. It's because they, they were just making the final statements. And so there's nothing that he could say, as far as I can understand, is the law. So nothing he can say because they're both making their final statements. It seemed like, though, later on that this is a conversation that was everyone played their part, but this was already like, hey, you're going to say what you're going to say. You're going to say what yeah. you're going to say. But uh, if they're willing to cop up and, and stand up here and blah, 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 then what we'll go ahead and do is. Will, uh, w- um, you can expect ten years, or you can expect. Yeah, I think he said he get, usually would give him like a like. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll weigh it out maybe somewhere between uh, eight and twelve. Yeah. I'll make a pick. Yeah. So like, uh, so like they uh, they you know like the judge for the most part said it was a high you know like stated the it was, was a high profile case. And giving the, even though it was your, like, supposed to be your first time offense, uh, you know, it gave you the 10 years. And it was like me and Sandy and like the family were just, oh, what the F just happened? And you know, I remember you just like turning around, just being like, you know, like processing the 10 mm-hmm. years and like being like, you know, like looking at us like, it's okay. And like, there's nothing for us. It's like, there's nothing for us as a family. It's like, me and Sandy just kind of like walked away, like, you know, her uh, walking back to her cars from the courtroom and like being on the open air and it's like having to realize or like having to like cope with this judgment that just came down that I'm not going to see my brother for possibly Mm -hmm. 10 years. Uh, it was like this whole surreal feeling. It's like our, 
you know, our one child at a time is not going to know our, you know, her, her uncle for so long. But it was just like the whole, the whole, the, like the whole process and like seeing you, like getting the judgment and like turning around and you look like a little boy. Hmm. I mean, that's, it was like, you were just sheepish in that sense. It was like, yeah. You were, you looked like you were at peace. The family wasn't at peace, but you looked mm. like you were at peace. It's like, I was kind of expecting this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, I'm very grateful that, uh, I didn't make it worse for them than what it, you know, uh, cause I kind of felt like I already put them through enough. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so again, was I conscientious of what was, going on and all that type of stuff no but i wanted them to know i was like it's okay you know because again i had that kind of pseudo conversation with god in my head of saying i'll get you i'll get you home it's but you got to make the journey to get there Mm -hmm. for me home was get me to my sentencing so i can start facing it yeah but at that point, honestly, at that point, I was like, um, you don't owe me anything else. You get me there, and you've done your part. You can walk away. You're free of obligation. Yeah. So that's how I felt between me and God. And I was like, you did your part. Yeah. you know. And I said, our deal is done. You did your part. I did my part. Mm-hmm. And now i got to figure out what to do next. Yeah. Um, and then that's when we got to the probably one of the most pivotal uh, uh, moments of my life was that first moment in my cell mm-hmm. and where I had to make a decision. It was it was almost like it was almost like we had a contract. We both fulfilled our side of the contract mm-hmm. and we had to rewrite a new contract. Yeah. Now you get to re up if you want. Yep. And that's what it felt like. Yeah. And 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 I was like. Yeah. Well, I kind of I kind of wonder if that's like in a way like prison time was a blessing because if you were on probation your life would probably would it, have taken a completely different direction like your contract was up. Completely. So, exactly. It it um I have never ever cursed the time that I spent in prison. I've never lamented it. I've never yeah. sat there and said, "Man, um it's it's always been like it wasn't wasted. The last year I was like, eh, you kind of didn't need to do that last year. But hey, you had your reason, whatever. But because he was eligible, and then mm-hmm. they just, they just kept him there. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but I never felt like honestly like I was just the whole time I was like, there's something. It got to a certain point in the process, and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're going to basically finish this part of the podcast and I'm going to come back later and um, I will break down like what happened in my, in my journey and then what happened after what's happened afterwards and, and where things are going. Um, But just as kind of like a a nutshell of, of what that time was is that there, there came a point and it was in after I'd been in prison for about a year, a little over a year, I every time you're locked up you're always thinking about what it would be like to not for, to be released all of a sudden just suddenly released 
and how awesome that would be. I remember I, we, I was in a faith-based dorm at this point, and th- everything had taken a turn for the better. Um, and I had really kind of settled in, and the things that were happening, so all the stuff that I was sharing about the fact that I was in depression, um, where my breaking points were at, uh, uh, being able to recall the Starbucks robbery, all of that happened once I got to the faith-based dorm and I started like, I got to like a safe place and I started processing. All this stuff was coming out and I was just like, I didn't know that was there. I didn't, I was learning about myself the whole time that one day I remember I was walking out, I was walking down the bowling alley and I, that thought came to me. The captain comes up and says, hey, I just, it was almost like vivid, like I could imagine it happening. The captain comes up and says, hey, Mathis, uh, you're being processed out. Mm -hmm. Something happened with your case, you're being processed out. And I remember in my head being like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't, I hope, I don't want that to happen. I would resist it if that happened. Mm -hmm. I want to stay right here because whatever's happening right now, I've never experienced this type of healing and processing. I've never known myself as clearly as I know myself right now. I was like, whatever you're doing, God, right now, I don't want to stop it. Even if it means comfort, even if it means freedom, like what the freedom that I'm experiencing right now. And then from that moment on, several nights, I would be laying in this dorm room. And usually I did SSI work at night. So I'm closing everything down and sweeping everything and blah, blah, blah. And so I have the whole place kind of myself. Dorm's closed up. It's quiet. It's dark. And I've cleaned everything up. And I can just take my time doing whatever I want. And I remember just, you know, I I had just finished, you know, you, you clean everything up and you take a shower and you get ready and you go lay in bed. And you can go to bed anytime you want. You got no bills. You got nothing. <laughs> you know, you, it's just, it's it's a surreal experience. And I remember just laying there and I was like, it hit me. I was like, I'm happy. Hmm. And I was like, not only am I happy, I'm content. And I don't know if I've ever been, I was like, why am I so happy? And I was like, and then guilt came over and I was like, I shouldn't be allowed to be this happy. I'm supposed to be in prison. I'm supposed to be miserable. I'm supposed to be paying my penance. I was like, no, I'm totally at peace. I'm so freaking happy. And I just remember just being like, to just saying to God, just being like, thank you. I can't believe I'm in this place right now. I can't believe I'm in this state of mind. Um, so yeah, the, the 10 years actually has been one of the biggest blessings. And later on, as I, as I get to the next podcast and break into this, huh? Well, cause how many, yeah, yeah. Six it's locked up or yeah. So it'll be two years dealing from the robbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So May of 2009 yeah. to the time when I come off parole, which will be sometime between December and October. Okay. But you spent six locked years. up and mm-hmm. then. Four was on parole. Years. Okay. Yeah, so I had two years on, uh, two and a half years on um, bond. Yeah. Six years locked up. Two and a half years on bond. I know. That's a long they time. had kept having cases from Laredo and El Paso. Yeah. They're having so many problems on the border, and huh. so those cases kept coming into San Antonio. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and it kept pushing our court case back. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's 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 uh, and then uh, it's almost been four years. Uh, so yeah, twelve years total. Um. But the ten years is uh, is it was hard to swallow, but 
the productivity that I've been able to get out of it. See, I had to get 10 years because I needed five years in prison, mm-hmm. or I at least needed four years in prison to work on myself. Yeah, I don't know what the rest of the time was for, but <laughs> I know for sure I needed at least four years to, to process work and blah, 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 blah. Um, actually, it's because of the extra time that I got that I met the guy that I'm actually going to go start working with in East Texas. Mm. And, and working with his trucks and, and doing work with them. Um, and, you know, I was able to meet with, during that, because of that extra two years, kind of, at four years, all the internal stuff, like I'm working on myself, kind of topped off. Yeah. And now I'm just waiting to implement it. But in those extra two years, I was able to spend, uh, I was able to lead two separate Bible studies where we were able to walk through the entire Bible <laughs> during those two years. And I was able to kind of like meet uh, and and share, you know, time and spend yeah. time with yeah. guys I'd never would have. Kind of put yeah. back in. You built yourself up. Yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's been pretty unique explaining the, explaining your uh, your testimony or just your life. Uh, my brother who was saved and was actually a missionary at some point. Uh, is now in prison being doing missionary work <laughs> from inside. It's like it was it's been pretty extraordinary. I think that's the perfect word, extraordinary your uh and and how God has used you and used your situ- your situation and used you like falling out and being lost to this amazing ministry that you don't know the implications of what it meant yeah. you know and all the people that you encountered it's like who it's like when i can't i guess just, i can't think of when or what instance i've ever heard of a situation where somebody of such fervent belief and knowledge and uh uh, and faith has been put in a situation to where they are one-on-one level with criminals. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, by being a criminal himself because of God allowing him to fall into the vices of hmm. doubt and disbelief and uh, the world making an argument against God to allow you to um, make a decision that maybe or maybe there's that doubt that crept into your heart and crept into your mind yeah all of that has come to fruition into putting this person who God has built up and prepared for uh, yeah amazing ability in terms of how we know it in this physical world uh, to testify to people who probably would never hear quite such a testimony. It still you know, it gives me chills to think about. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, I, I, I wanted to go ahead and just finish my part of it up and just let you guys, you know, if you had any other questions, um, to, to throw those out, or observations or thoughts or whatever. Um, but I would just say that um, I haven't told this story 
and I never told it because um, in full in full uh, mainly just because I never really I, I and to this day I don't really see it's not really that interesting to me I don't see what is um, interesting in, in in this story but I guess it is interesting because it it uh, it always gets an interest uh, a, a reaction of you know, of a little bit of incredulousness, but where I knew that things were different was when I would share what happened with guys in prison and they were like, look, nobody does that, man. Nobody goes and robs a place by themselves. They rob it in groups. If you rob it by yourself or you do anything by yourself, you're on drugs, alcohol, you got something in your system to get you to point A to point B. Um, Half a Xanax, yeah. <laughs> despair, yeah, yeah. That's really a drug of despair. Uh, they were like, "You should have told me you're on drugs. You would have got a lighter sentence." I was like, "Yeah, I probably would have." Uh, yeah, when I look at it, I'm just kind of like, "Yeah, it's just I don't think it's that interesting or whatever." Yeah. But the interesting part of it is, I think that what it taught me about life that I just didn't know. I had no idea. I had no concept of what racism was. Yeah. You live racism. Like whatever CRT is trying to do, prison is implementing it right now. They break people up based on race, based on uh, whatever you identify yourself as and all that type of stuff. And then if you're white, for the most part, you're going to be the lowest person on the totem pole because you're supposed to be one of the weaker voices and and you shouldn't have a voice for the most part um if you're solo or if you're a christian like me you got no voice (laughs) negative voice voice. uh stay out of stay out of our way stay in your lane um so uh but yeah it's 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 not it's it, it has its own uh reason for for being and it's got its own uniqueness to it um it's but i think one of the things is that um when I used to when when guys would ask me, Hey, what are you in for? And I'd be like robbery. And they'd be like, Bullshit. And I'd be like, No, no, no. I'm like, you know, I was like, Look, I know I know I don't look like this like a guy that does that, but you know, that's what I'm here for. And they ask yeah. if they don't believe it, they'll ask for paperwork because they're like, Now you're trying to cover up you're actually a sex vendor or you're actually a rapist mm-hmm. or you're actually something else. <laughs> so you gotta carry your paperwork with you, especially when you look like me and you're they're like this guy didn't, you were dealing drugs, right? Yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. And they said, uh. and they're like, well, tell us what happened. And I'd be like, ah, you know, it's just a robbery. I, I didn't want to get into it. Part of it was I didn't want them to respect me for that. Mm-hmm. I also was mortified that I had made such a debacle of the robbery. Mm-hmm. When you're locked up and you're yeah. in lockdown and you got nothing to do and everyone's told their story and then they're finally like, Hey, Why don't you do this? <laughs> yeah. So what in the world got... And they ask questions, ask questions, and yeah. finally they're like, you weren't wearing a mask? I was like, yeah, I was wearing a mask. What kind of mask were you wearing? The rock mask. Ah! <laughs> 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 Can you smell? They're all... <laughs> they're all, this motherfucker. <laughs> you know? and, and they just got such a freaking kick. And then they're like, well, what happened? What happened? And every now and then I would tell them, and I'd be like... Look, it was it was a kind of a comedy show. The freaking bags broke open and hmm. money was going everywhere, and they're just like Easy losing it. their mind. They're like, "This is the best story," and they're like, "Tell your story." And I'm like, "I don't want to tell my story, man. 
I was there's times when you're like, man, I wish I had a freaking good story if yeah. I walked up. Yeah, hey, you had you had one. Yeah, <laughs> you had many different ways. It's just, that's it's part unusual. of like backwards pride. I think it's it's unusual in so many different ways to so many different people. Like to me, it always hit me. It's like, how do you go from being involved in church and a good Christian boy <laughs> from a pretty good family, you know, to, to doing that Paul this, Mathis character to doing this and then coming back to it? <laughs> it's like, who has who has the audacity to come back to it? <laughs> yeah, and then because uh, especially like like you you attended his hill, and so when I talk to people, oh yeah, prison Steve, and they're like, what? <laughs> Prison, prison, what? Steve. Hold on. And uh, <laughs> so prison, yeah, yeah. I, uh, we helped give him this, this nickname. And uh, now, wait, like, wait. Yeah, I yeah, had the Steve. nick. Prison Steve. I That's had Steve. the nickname, but you guys like locked in and said yes. No, no, no. You didn't have. I don't think you had the nickname. You had Scuba Steve. No, I had. Right? Pris- I had. I had. I told you that I was thinking of Prison Steve because of Prison Mike. Uh, okay. And and and, and not well because at least the but, way but the then way I, I remember it. No, no. Then I found out that you guys were already calling me yes, prison Steve. Yeah, behind your back. Behind my back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because uh, we'd say, "Oh yeah, you know Steve, Steve Mathis," and they're like, "Uh," people at church would be like, oh, "I don't know." And I'm like, "No, no, no." Uh, you know, Big Steve, and they're like, "Big Steve, Big Steve." Yeah, you know. Prison Steve, oh. and then people, like, oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's only one guy who's been to prison in church in our circles at least in this church, yeah. But uh, like, if you go to some others like Bandera Road, like yeah. half of them have been to prison. Which prison Steve? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which one? Prison Steve, Prison Stephen, Prison <laughs> Stefan, Esteban. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, this is uh, wait, the other nickname we could have him is Boat Shoes Steve. Yeah. Oh God, <laughs> that's the that take the, too the long church is kind of a. <laughs> Church is kind of a more of a mm, aren't as many. People it's not the usual prison there. It's, it's more <laughs> likely they'd wear boat, boat shoes. Yeah, it's but, not the usual circle. I would yeah, wear not that. the usual circle. But uh, what was I saying with the? Uh, oh, so it's just unusual. Like well, so yeah, I mean, like 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 Paul and and them like like they were actually put into prison for good reason, <laughs> for, like for for a good reason for like, the yeah, faith, for, for yeah, good in the sense of like of like. For, like God's good reason. So there's, a, but they're not doing that anymore. So, so you gotta find another way in. So there's this, uh, there's a scripture that says, uh, there's a scripture that I think Paul or Peter said, and he said, uh, if you're gonna suffer, make sure you suffer for a good mm-hmm. cause, or yeah. if you're gonna go to prison, yeah. make sure you go to, for a good cause. I'm like, you uh, skip that well, verse. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the quarters yeah. won't get credit for that one. Is yeah. a quarter is a good enough cause? <laughs> yeah. So, do you guys have any uh, final like thoughts or observations or any other questions or? Um... Well, I, like I will say, like when you came home, it was it very much so like the prodigal story. Uh, you know, like our family, uh, on a whole, for the most part, I know I think I voiced it most through emails that was just like, "We love you. We don't understand what's going on, but we love you." <laughs> And uh, between that and between like the acceptance of like, okay, let's deal with what what you did. Fortunately enough for us, it was uh, it it was a something that it was an outcome that left nobody harmed. And there was like no repercussions other than just monetary. 
well, which and you some, paid back. Yeah, yeah, and some emotional and psychological damage, which is something I came sure. to terms with uh, for the people that were my victims and that I've uh, just always just felt just horrible about. You, like, uh, like, given where this will actually end up going, saying anything to those individuals who felt... Uh, emotionally traumatized by your actions. We actually uh, wrote a letter to uh, during one of the processes, uh, one of the classes that I would I volunteered for, um, where you write a letter to your victims, mm-hmm. and um, so basically the nuts and bolts of that letter is that I don't blame anybody or blame anything. I know I was in depression, but I don't. Uh, my actions were my actions, and and so. I say to them if they would ever hear it or ever find out through, you know, just roundabout way, is that I am eternally sorry for just what I did, what I put you through. And um, I understand now that the mental, psychological damage, because what I would do is I would be like, what if somebody had robbed my mom? And how would I feel about the way that that had affected her and, and or had done this to my father? Or how how that would have affected them, and how would, and I would just process that, and I, and so I understand that there's um, non physical hurt that can come from this, and for that I take so much ownership and just say, I am so sorry that I put anybody through that, especially uh, the girls um, that were at the Starbucks robbery, because, um, you know, for whatever reason I forget, I was told, you know, just don't mention it, don't talk about it um, uh, during the trial or during the thing. So for the people that were involved with the Palladium, they were kind of maybe able to get a little bit closure, but for the other uh, ones involved in Starbucks, they weren't. Mm -hmm. And so I just, um, I'm sorry that my dark state of mind and my, and where I was at, that they were the ones that caused that, that um, I brought them into, I brought them into that world and, and just, uh, you know, probably just, I mean, that's not something that you just go through and then forget. I mean, some people maybe, but yeah, it's, like I'm still rooting for people that cut me off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Through the day. Yeah. And like something like that, it's going to sit with you. Yeah. And, 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 and the, my main thing is that I can't do anything about my past, but what I have focused on is making sure that, like when I came out of prison, I had this mindset of, I'm never going to be a negative contributor to society again. That's maybe one of the reasons that I don't want to get drawn into the whole like um, riots and politicals and uh, uh, ways of manifesting anger and frustration and getting worked up about these things. Um, And... Um, I may not be traditional in the way that I contribute to society, but I want to make sure that uh, that I'm um, contributing a healthy way. Yeah. Just because I believe that that's part of my our roles as Christians is is to not be a negative contributor, but to be a um, a light that shines on a hill. Yeah. You know, by the way we live our lives and the way that we act and the way we treat others. I definitely didn't live that out. Huh. Well, I think I think um, the. Uh, somebody who would like hear this that was actually affected by it <clears throat> couldn't hope for a better outcome from like uh, where you're at now 
as opposed to uh, other situations where people are, uh, you know, have are still in the system or, you know, like mm -hmm. repeat offenders or, you know, like are still struggling with, um, you know, like coping with society and are uh, back and forth with the system. Um, you know, they had trauma, but that trauma, you know, is also bred uh, a good amount of brightness yeah. into the world. Whether yeah. they believe what as we believe, it's still brightness. Yeah. Well, God, uh, and God uses it. Yeah. It's like God uses it for us, yeah. but in their sense, it's like whether or not they believe in God or not, is that there's still brightness that comes from it yeah. uh, into our uh, into our community and with the, the people that you affect um, who don't end up believing the way we believe. Yeah. I would, last observation, I guess, I'd have is you talked about, I guess it was a dark state of mind, and it ties something into what you were talking about, Andy, with um, there being brightness. Like, as as Christians, of course, I guess our perspective is, is, is that it does tie back to, like, the only good that we do is through God and because of God. Like, it's, um, you know, it's it's not that you have, you know, part good, part bad inside of you, and yeah. uh, the, oh, the bad one at that point. It's just all of, we're all capable of descending to that level just because of sin mm -hmm. in our lives, and maybe it happens in progressive <laughs> waves, but it's... Uh, it's it's only through the grace of God, and I guess that co-labor and co-working with Him in our in our sanctification of ourselves that we, um, you know that that brightness I guess in life is is possible. So it's not some sort of like oh yeah I, I guess it's not either. Well, I had this brokenness inside of me. I mean, we're all broken in the way with sin. Mm -hmm. um, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to blame it, I guess, on some sort of a depressive episode or some sort of a, um, yeah, it was just the way I was wired or, you know, the circumstances or it just happened. I mean, it's just, we're all capable, I think, of that. If uh, I, I think what has uh, been kind of made known to me is that um, when you take somebody's, everyone has their own type of foundation they're building on. Um, I learned this really early on and during my prison journey that if you put your hope, trust, comfort level, whatever, in something that can be taken away from somebody else, at some point you're going to get your world rocked. Mm -hmm. So I'd watch some guys that would be like, I'm going to try to do my time as comfortable as possible. They get the best job they possibly can. They've got their best shows. You know, they got things worked out. Food's a big comfort. They're moving it, blah, blah, blah. That can get taken away in a moment. People that put their faith and their hope and their trust and their and their foundations, their family. I watched so many people. I watched people lose their family because their family died while they were in prison. I watched it because their family left them or wives left them or their children disowned them. Um, and I saw that get knocked away. Um, so... I, I saw people that are like all about self-fulfillment and self-betterment and blah, blah. All it takes is a bad day, a bad situation. You can have that world knocked out from underneath you. Um, there's a scripture where it says that God's kingdom is a unshakable kingdom. Mm -hmm. 
and it mean to me it was like a kingdom that is removed from it's like a space uh station yeah it's when you see chaos going on on earth like an earthquake movie or whatever mm-hmm. like a, a end of the world type of thing and they're like watching like oh my god it looks crazy there mm-hmm. they don't feel it because they're disconnected for, yeah. th- that's not part of their foundation and to me every time i would put my faith i was like when i put my faith in god i was putting in something that couldn't be taken away and couldn't be shaken when i eventually it was like a two or three step process of moving away from my faith what i found out is that i am a type of person and was a type of person that i put everything my identity and everything into my faith not a lot of everybody does that because what will happen is let's say you kick faith out from underneath them for whatever reason or they walk away from that or whatever most people have like family to ground them or a career or some type of community they're in to kind of keep them sober. I didn't have any of that. So uh, this whole thing shows me the power of of, this, of, of of Christ being, for me and for anybody that else that will ever put their faith and trust in Him, and truly put their trust in Him, when you actually put it in Him, it can't be taken away. So I, I had times where I was ta- literally stripped down to all I had on was my shorts, and I was thrown into a cell, and I had nothing else. I didn't have a Bible. I didn't have anything, and I was completely at peace. I was p- completely calm because I had the comforting presence of, of the— first off, I knew the Scriptures, so the Scriptures were in mm-hmm. my head. The other thing was that uh, they were written on my heart. The other thing is I had the presence of God with me. So no matter how much they stripped me down to the base, I was like— my found my my identity was still yeah. set, and so now as I move forward and I watch, now that I'm out, I watch other people engage in the world around them. I'm like, dude, if you're sharing your identity with anybody else, not only can they use that against you later, it can also be something that completely rocks and unhinges you. And so, and I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that people's, um, and and so it's just taught me, you know, to. Mm. Uh, so these are just a few of the lessons that I learned during that that process, and and one of the many many reasons that I'm grateful for what happened, and uh, and the journey and the story. Um, I do understand the fact that look, I've done my time, and I'm not going to hold my head in shame. I'm not going to sit there and just be like, oh, I was like, look, I got sentenced. I did the time that I was supposed to, and I'm being responsible with the person that I am. And I think that anybody that ever is coming out of that situation has to understand. It's like, look, you've got to process this yourself. You can't just mm-hmm. constantly keep beating yourself up. Yeah. And if you want to constantly keep beating somebody up, up for what they've done, um, and they're trying to move on and they're trying to, you know, you're going to have to, uh, you know, um, every situation is different. There's some really horrible situations out there that uh, are different than others. But... Um, forgiveness for ourselves i had to forgive myself to be able to move on mm-hmm. and um and then just understand that being a victim doesn't ever work i don't ever yeah. want to i'm not a victim of depression i the only reason i bring it up is cuz it was not something during that time that christians talked about yeah. it was it was it wasn't some and now we talk about it because we've seen some high profile suicides and situations and people have been coming forward about it but at that time, nobody talked about it. That's why I didn't even th- 
understand what was going on yeah. or that was a possibility. Now if I see that in other people, I, I, I want to address it and bring it out. So, but uh, I think with that, we're closing up here. Yeah. And uh, I just want to thank you guys. This was a, a lot of time you guys put in. You guys made some serious uh, sacrifices. Not quite six hours. Uh, to be here <laughs> but we're working there <laughs> yeah and uh yeah i appreciate you guys and yeah. just i love y'all you. you guys are my community yeah. Thanks for and sharing. uh Thanks for letting us be a part of it yeah look forward to uh more yeah there'll be more well guys that will about do it um <laughs> man if you've made it this far you are uh you're you're a trooper and i just want to say thank you i commend you I know it was a lot of um, a lot of information. It you know this is a, a significant amount of time that someone devotes to listen to these two episodes. I really hope that for you, you found it interesting, engaging. I'm gonna assume that you made it found it a little bit interesting because you made it this far. Um, and you know, I, I may have to do it again. Again, this is my first time. I've never had to unpack it, and I've never sat down and unpacked it all the way through and been open to any question and talking about some of these uh, topics that I just have never, ever uh, touched on. And I had my reasons in prison for staying away from this. A lot of it was I was trying not to give them ideas. Once I saw them starting to kind of take mental notes, I was like, uh, you know, I've already done enough damage. I'm not really trying to contribute to uh, my situation or some of the ideas that I came across or have or had or, or did. Um facilitating uh, another situation or another robbery or giving anybody ideas. I, I actually want them to move in another direction with that. And so I just kind of kept my story to myself. Um, and again, in, in prison, not again, I haven't said this yet, but in prison, I spent a majority of my time listening and asking questions rather than telling my own story. And that might have been why I did pretty well was because I wasn't trying to puff myself up. I wasn't trying to talk about myself. I didn't really see my situation, specifically my crime. I saw it as being more of an embarrassment than anything. I didn't. I did. I didn't find it. A. I don't personally find the f story that fascinating, but probably because I lived it. But B. I just. I. Th I thought. You know. This is not something I'm proud of, and um, so I really kind of kept that to myself all that time. So again, this is the first time I'm packing it. I might have to redo this whole thing just for clarification's sake, or maybe just to put it into practice of being able to tell the story more. But I wanted to put it out there um, in full and not hold anything back. And um, just so that if you're ever wondering, like, how in the world did you go from there to there? Well, here you go. I can refer you back to these two podcasts here. The next podcast series that we'll be doing is going to be um, with my buddy Chris Nickel. And the third is a mystery guest because I don't know who it is yet. And uh, we're going to be just being able to dive into from day one what it was like being locked up, knowing that you're going to be facing that amount of time, who you come across, how you, you know, and just how you navigate the system with like what kind of mentalities can you have to navigate through that? What are some of the things you see? Yes. But really it's just, you know, what did I do from day one? Where did I end up going? What was time like uh, doing that six years? And what has happened since? What is it like for an ex-felon uh, to come out into the world today? Um, and, uh, you know, I came out in 2017, and that doesn't seem like that long ago, but after 2020 and 2021, 
and everything that's happening, it's like, uh, it's, it almost seems like a different generation that I came out in. So there's some things that will be relevant and some things that won't. But for the most part, just being able to share what that's been like and uh, just where I'm going to be going from here. Like I said, uh, I will be recording on the road as I'm driving. And I've got some uh, uh, friends of mine, um, some that have been locked up before and others that I'm coming across and just other people in general and just wanted to hear their story and let them share like things they've done and words of wisdom. And we'll just kind of let it go. But uh, this is pretty much the format I want. Sometimes it'll be solo and I'll just, you know, uh, be diving into a topic or issue that I wanted to dive into. But whenever I can, I'm going to bring somebody on so we can kind of facilitate some discussions and uh, the more we get into this and I'm able to come across somebody that uh, fascinates me with the subject matter that they have a, yeah, it's if this is their field and this is something that they're qualified to talk about uh, on certain subjects that are just fascinating to me, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into that. If you guys have questions, I may take some time in the podcast. I probably will to answer them and via the podcast. Um, and uh, feel free to reach out to me any of the ways that you'll see in the uh, like little Apple podcast or Spotify a little section right there on the podcast. It'll have like how to reach out to me and um, I'll be working on, I guess maybe a website or something like that. We'll see. It's not that big of a deal, I guess, but I want you guys to know that I love you. I appreciate you guys. Y'all rock and enjoy the free world. It's a whole lot better than the other side. Thank you guys so much for joining me for this podcast on whatever platform you're choosing. You can find the Prison Steve podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher now, as well as the Red Circle podcast. If you want to throw your support for the show, the three best ways are to subscribe, leave a review, especially if it's five star, and to share with anyone you think would be interested. Those three things will help me build some organic traction, which is really the best kind. Any comments or tips that you have for me, feel free to share them via the email or the Facebook link that I will be leaving in the description. For all of your support and listening to this show, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I look forward to the next one. Please remember, stay sane, be positive. Peace.